0: Hello, I'm Zev Newworth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on the podcast are solely my own, do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, we're going to discuss some issues today that I have been wanting to address for some time, issues that impact how long we live and importantly, how long we live healthy lives. I am super excited to speak with our guest today. He and his colleagues have been studying this issue and have published a number of landmark reports, which I highly recommend and I will post in the copy to this podcast. And I'm not just saying I like them. In fact, in my book, Beyond the Walls, I quote and reference two of their studies, one on the cost of disparities in care in the US and the other is on our topic today. And the specific report that I'm going to and we're going to address today in this podcast, in this dialogue, it is entitled, How Employers Can Spark a Movement to Live Longer, Healthier Lives. And the subtitle is, All Americans Could Have Longer Health Spans, Live Nearly 20 More Healthy Years, and see a drop in healthcare spending by 2040. This is amazing. These folks have done tremendous modeling of lifespans and health spans in the US, and they found that we can live healthier lives and potentially 95% of our lives in good health. And again, who would not be interested in that? So without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. It is Neil Batra. Neil is a principal in Deloitte's life sciences and healthcare practice and a global future of health leader focused on business model and commercial operational redesign, innovation, and transformation. Neil heads Deloitte's life sciences strategy and analytics practice, leading the way on next-generation enterprise strategy, analytics, and technology. Neil has more than 15 years of experience advising healthcare organizations and businesses in the fields of biotech, medtech, health insurance, and retail healthcare. He is the co-author of Deloitte's provocative future of health point of view, speculating on the healthcare ecosystem in 2040 and the business models and the capabilities that will matter most in the future of healthcare. Neil holds an MBA from the London Business School and a BBA from the College of William and Mary. Neil, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you today?
1: I'm fabulous and I'm so thrilled to be here and I did not know that I was in your book and that the Deloitte papers were in your book so I'm so thrilled to hear that as well.
0: Absolutely. In fact, it's it's page 76 and 77 and page 128 and 29. In fact, I have a whole section on humanism and healthcare and a whole health and when I came across your work in the last year or so, I literally I went to Deloitte insights and just looked at all of those amazing reports. I take my hat off to y'all. I I really think you are top-notch in your writings and your reports and so well researched and the actuarial modeling that you use. So again, I am, as you could tell, a big fan. And we've never talked before and you don't know that, but now you do.
1: No, I'm thrilled to hear it. And frankly, I'm thrilled because it was the point. You know, when when we started this 2018, 2019, when I sort of drafted the original pass, it, it was meant to change the narrative. It was meant to illuminate on what's possible. And you'll see as we get into this conversation, I'm sure there's so often a view that there's trade-offs here. You know, if I want people to be healthier, I was going to have to spend more. And that means we're going to have to, you know, manage choices around when we intervene and how we intervene. And and there's always this scarcity mindset on this exercise in part, because we're always managing on the back end of disease. What we want to do is change the discussion and make the point that we think you can have it all healthier, live longer, live more dynamically, lower costs. We think all of that is possible collectively, if you actually go about it in an orchestrated way. So- I'm sure we'll get into that, but I appreciate that you've read it and you've enjoyed it. And it really makes me thrilled to, to hear that.
0: Well, you know, I, I really want to just emphasize your, the point you made, because in fact, I was just uh, writing about this and, and and speaking about this in an interview I did. This issue of changing the narrative is so critical. And I think it's the first step. If we have, for the most part, and this is one of the reasons I am so enamored with your approach and your thinking and your reports, is that. It is, And we're going to get into it. It is a very, very different answer to a set of problems Mm -hmm. and dilemma we have been struggling with for decades. And, you know, I don't think we are going to, in fact, I'm pretty darn positive. We are not going to solve the problem in the same way we've been thinking about it. And yet that's all we continue to do. And I think you're presenting a, a really market alternative. And market, I mean with a D, a really big alternative, which I think is really important. Before we jump in, I'd love for you to, you know, you talk about in your papers, you talk about sick care versus well care, you talk about lifespan and health span. And so, could you for a moment maybe define that difference between sick care and well care? and lifespan and health span, just so that we yeah. we're aware what that terminology is. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And those distinctions are important and they're kind of the crux of doing exactly what you said, which is changing this conversation and making it clear what is actually possible if we just orient ourselves on the problems differently. So sick care is reactionary responsive therapy, right? It's break fix. It is, I feel unwell or I have an accident or an injury or an illness and I show up and I am now looking to respond and react to get me back to wholeness or wellness. Well care is actions and activities, some of which may be quasi-therapeutic, but that allow me to maintain this period of low disease, no disease, and keeps me essentially well and maybe extends my wellness or enhances my wellness and generally gives me a sort of disease avoidance mindset and maintenance sort of perspective. That's the sick care versus well care dynamic. Sick care is responsive and reactive. Wellness and well care is really more proactive early engagement. On health span and lifespan, lifespan, I think, is the more sort of intuitive one, which is how long do I live? It's a calendar point, right? You know, average lifespan is, you know, mid-70s, and we're hoping to get it to 77, 78. And, you know, the media was so excited over the last two years to, to, to sort of breathlessly report, hey, lifespan has shrunk given, you know, opioid dynamics in sort of the areas of the U.S. And, and other aspects, COVID as well. You know, we talk about that and that tends to be the way we talk about life is in terms of years lived. What we wanted to also bring back into the conversation, and of course, many folks have spoken about it over the years, but it's this notion of health span. How healthy are the years that you live actually? And what we found when we did this study was it was almost exactly in line with that The moment at which you retire is when your health actually declines. So your healthiest years went to your employer, and in the time that was meant to sort of be the golden years or the years in which you you had a financial sort of foundation that allowed you to maybe do different things with your life, your health span would decline to a point where your quality of life would decline. And even though you may still live another 10, 12 years, they were not healthy years. So we wanted to bring back in the conversation, yes, it's about longevity, how many years you live, but it's also as much about how healthy are those years, and they should all be healthy right? We should not have an expectation that there's this natural decline in your last many years of life on this planet are, you know, spent in disease or spent in sort of managing an illness. So again, are it possible, we want to change that narrative a bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And I think those definitions and distinctions are super important. And again, I think you really just stated the value proposition for every single one of us, right? Who doesn't want to have, you know, a healthy life in their older age, especially mm-hmm. the, the time when, like you said, you've worked hard for so many years and now here comes some time where you could enjoy yourself and who would want to live that with, you know, illness and disease and incapacitation and all that goes with. So I think the value proposition yeah. was there. What did you discover, you know, that you reported on in this report? What was the finding? And I mean, you know, the bottom line of the how much longer we could live and how much longer, many years we could have healthier lives. That's profound. I'm just, I'm wondering if you could give us that kind of purview of what you actually discovered.
1: Yeah. In a nutshell, it kind of blew our socks off. What we found mm-hmm. was that we think we could add an average of 12 years of lifespan to every person in the U.S. that's alive today and simultaneously add 19 and a half years of health span for everybody who's living today. And we think we can achieve that by 2040, right? So you start getting into timing dynamics of, you know, can that happen right now or things have to change in the way in which I engage with the health system and the well care system that lets me do that. But by 2040, what we're saying is we think lifespan should increase by 12 years and health span should increase by 19.4 to be specific. If we manage this and go about the dynamics of health and healthcare differently.
0: So, yeah. So let's just pick up on that. So, you know, again, you write about, and we corresponded a bit back and forth by email. You write about in our correspondence, this idea of investing in structural drivers of health. That's what you call it. And also five key actions that can be taken. So what do we need to do? I mean, I, I know I'm asking that question and I'm sure others are wondering, okay, you know, who doesn't want, you know, what you just described. So, and, and 2040, by the way, folks, it does seem like it's far off, but actually it's not that far off. Right. And so it's just a few years away. And so Neil, what did you discover that we can do these five key actions and structural drivers?
1: Yeah. It's it's funny on the 2040 piece, because I always have to share with my clients. Not so far, right. If you remember 2006, (laughs) that's where 2040 is to today. Right. So it's there. And I still remember conversations I had in 2006, crystal clear. So it's not, not so far.
0: Well, I wish I had your memory, Neil.
1: (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting in terms of what has to happen here. So in particular, in this paper, look, everybody plays a role in this ecosystem, right? You as an individual have responsibilities, family dynamics matter, social structures and services matter. But we really hung this aspiration of adding 12 years of life and 19 and a half years of healthy living. We hung it on the employer. And there was a real purpose to that, which is frequency and longevity, are two things that the relationship between an individual and an employer exists that don't necessarily exist with other stakeholders in the system, right? You may or may not rotate through your insurer, you may or may not rotate through your physician, especially as we move to more virtual health. You know, It's hard to have that continuity, but the employer actually in many cases is there. And so what's interesting about this is you're asking about the structural dynamics. What we really emphasize is what can structurally change with the employer at the center of this conversation for a moment, what would structurally need to change. And, and more than anything, and it sounds like such a simple point, but a lot of this is we do not measure the problem. We don't actually have a great fact set around what is happening, what is going on from an illness and wellness dynamic, from a disease prevention dynamic, from a treatment and therapy and care dynamic. Once you know, you've know you been diagnosed with the condition, we just don't have the right data. And employers in particular you know, always seem to have mixed data sets around this. Some of it is linked around confidentiality. Some of it is around employees not wanting their employers to have that data in some cases, justifiably, right? Because you have historically some really bad behaviors going on, Mm -hmm. but long story short, structural change one is we need a data set that explains where things are going poorly. Why is it that people tend to have such erosion in health right around the time of retirement? what are the nature of those health dynamics and illnesses that are emerging? And could they be seen or detected years in advance? You know, I had a a wildly interesting conversation with a senior exec at one of the large hospital systems in the US. And we were talking about this concept. This is going back now three, four years ago, actually. We're having this conversation. His comment to me was, look, so Neil, you're telling me that I get it. I'm going to engage with my diabetics earlier. I'm going to do a lot of sort of remote engagement. I'm going to maybe help them navigate some things. But at some point, Doesn't the diabetic not manage their disease and don't they still need to show up getting care from my people in my system, in my hospital, you know, and taking space in my beds and all of that. And my counterpoint was, I don't think you're dialing up early line of sight, early intervention far enough. We should be finding ways to engage with people when they're pre-diabetic or maybe pre-pre-diabetic. And again, this is not about taking people's data when they don't want to give it to you. But assuming you've got information flows and you have line of sight and there's some honesty and trust there in terms of sharing that information, employers are uniquely positioned to see behaviors, see changes in health, anticipate additional changes in health, and really find ways to create tools, uh, health literacy, access to information, access to other programs that lets you maybe intercept and actually halt the development of emerging disease altogether. Are you going to stop every diabetic from becoming a diabetic if you get to them, you know, before they're even pre-diabetic? Certainly not. But but even if you go after and get 20, 30, 40% of folks to either extend onset of disease and maybe some portion of that population to avoid it altogether, the benefits to health span, lifespan are massive. The benefits to the system from a cost perspective, massive. The benefits from a quality of life for that individual and their families, massive.
0: Yeah. You talk about this notion of... Now granted I think the notion of prevention and identification of disease upstream is huge and important but you also talk about how we need to start to use technology a bit more and digital technology a bit more you talk about how we need to start to segment populations better you know mm-hmm. whether it's needs for specific subpopulations like women versus men you know older adults versus you know and the elderly versus younger folks And so I think as you talk to, and I'm sure you spend time talking to, you know, benefits managers, you know, and employers and employer coalitions, how do you share this with them? And and what do they say in return when you say we need to start to really, you know, do things differently?
1: Yeah. I had a large health plan client of mine invite me to talk to the benefits managers of their top 20 customers. And mainly to talk about this paper and these findings and the broader future of health narrative that we've been talking about for the last five years. I mean, I talk about an interesting room, the, the reaction in the room, I would say 60 to 70% of benefits managers, and this is anecdotal, 60 mm-hmm. to 70% of benefits managers in the room were excited and enthused that they could make investments in wellness, well-being, early detection, early intervention type solutions, and both provide better health outcomes for their employees and maybe see a benefit on the cost side over time. And so, you know, 60 to 7% saw that. I had a solid 30% in that room that were not having it at all. <laughs> and I yeah. had one in particular that that basically told me, I am so overwhelmed trying to figure out options around sick care for my people. And now you're telling me I got to worry about the wellness thing and I got to parse through hundreds of vendors who think that they can help me and figure out how to plug that in and make that you know, accessible in a logical way for my people. She was like, no, thank you. I'm out. I think that's an honest distribution of this because it's not an easy change. It's organized very differently.
0: No, well, no shift like this is, you know, no paradigm shift. No, no reframe is, is easy, but it's important. And I want to underscore this. I'm going to, you know, borrow from things you've written and your colleagues have written. And because I, I think this is where I was sort of blown away by the new narrative you're talking about. So, I want to, you know, we talk about this issue of the current unaffordability of healthcare and the unsustainability of the costs of American healthcare. And this is both at the macro level, at the large, you know, national economic level, but it's at the state level, it's at the employer level, and it's at the family and individual level, right? So we know that healthcare today, I'm not going to run through all these stats, but just remind us of the dire nature we're in right now, the situation Where, you know, yes, about 8% of Americans don't have health insurance, and that's close to 25 to 30 million people, which is significant. But there are 100, 100 million Americans, you know, over 40% of the Americans have medical debt, which is profound and is forcing them to make real decisions about whether to buy medications, go get the treatment they need, or pay for their electricity, housing, childcare, and so on. 100 million Americans I mean, medical debt is the number one cause of personal and family debt in the country. And it's been written and demonstrated that all it takes is one major hospitalization, one major trauma or illness, and most of America will be in debt. That's the situation, right? So we know that. And yet, you know, we keep on talking about how do we make... And I'm just gonna read something you wrote because I really, I think this sort of is such a different response here. So radically divergent from the typical response to like, what do we do about the unaffordability and the unsustainable costs of healthcare? And here's what you wrote to me, quote, I'd like to shift to a cost of avoidance narrative versus a cost of care narrative. The cost of care narrative is a trailing economic measure And there is no amount of innovation that will ever make it cost-effective to address the populations in this sort of break-fix modality. The only way out of the economic death spiral we are in when it comes to healthcare is to jump in front of illness and invest ferociously on disease avoidance and early as well as real-time diagnosis, end quote. That's what you wrote to me, and I absolutely, I think that is the most brilliant response I have ever heard to the issue of the just unethical and unsustainable cost of care in our country at all levels. Can you say more about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you Clearly, you caught me a little bit into my glass of wine there because I was (laughs) was really feeling it. But the reality is, uh, you know, we've started to really hit this point in the course of this conversation, which is we remain oriented around how do I make more efficient the respond and react nature of health and healthcare. Mm. You show up deeply unwell and I want to rally a machine to get you back to wellness. You know, for those of us that have kids or, you know, nieces and nephews, I mean, all you constantly teach your children is how do you avoid the big problem? Once you have the big problem, of course, you're going to scramble mode to fix it, but that's not the standard approach. You work And you have diligence and structures that you avoid the big problem. But we've not organized our health system like that at all. We've continued to, you know, allow for the monetization and the financial return to happen in the break-fix side of this equation and not in the avoidance and wellness and well-being side of the equation. And so a lot of what Deloitte in particular and my Future of Health team have spent energy on is, you know, what I'm really trying to emphasize is there is a business model around the disease avoidance, around the early detection, around the early intervention. And it doesn't necessarily mean it drives volume for those really high cost, late stage therapies that exist in the market, you know, be it devices, be it, you know, pharmacological solutions or whatever the case may be. I think there's lots of ways to deliver care that are much more cost effective, that get you back to wellness quickly, or allow you to avoid diseases. But it requires not having a myopic approach that's Six months, twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months, four, five, six years. There's measurable ROI around disease avoidance. If only we could have the sophistication and patience to see that through.
0: Well, and just picking up on that, and I'm I'm actually going to quote you and your team and and your colleagues in another study you did. And this is in the book I wrote, Beyond the Walls. Here's what you talk about, the sort of financial and economic imperative, right, for this wellness care. The United States is currently spending close to $4 trillion, 18% GDP on healthcare, projected to be 6.2 trillion by 2028 and 11.8 trillion by 2040. And your actuaries have calculated... That we could reduce that by 2040, that cost trajectory from 11.8 to 8.3 trillion by adopting well being as a mainstay of healthcare. And you've dubbed this, and tell me if you still talk about it this way you've dubbed this potential $3.5 trillion savings uh, by 2040 a well being dividend, which I mm-hmm. love. And mm-hmm. that's the return on investment you're talking about. It is literally trillions of dollars. That's right. and, and you talk about sort of this holistic with a W, this holistic sort of health care, which includes physical, mental, spiritual, social, emotional, equitable, even talking about financial health. That's a crazy, crazy return on investment. That is crazy savings. It seems to me it's the only way out of the mess we're in. And so- you know, I have a follow-up question about that because if th- these numbers are even remotely true, the question is how come it's not moving faster? How come we're not seeing and maybe it is? And so correct me if I'm wrong here that, you know, are you seeing this sort of shift or not? I just want you to respond to those numbers in that sort of well-being dividend first before we jump into the, you know, is it happening? And if it's not happening fast enough, why not?
1: Yeah. No, I appreciate the question because your surprise at the size was our surprise at the size. And those are massive numbers. 3.5 trillion in a single year in 2040, you know means that it was a 3.2 trillion the year prior, maybe 2.9 trillion the year prior. Like it is a sustained massive amount of savings to the U.S economy if we do this. Not to mention, I always hate leading with the numbers because it sounds like our eyes are not on the prize of, of actual human performance and, and human life. The, the implications on people and families is enormous. Mm -hmm. drive stability in society, drive stability in families, like all these things link fundamentally to health and wellness. And it's right there for us. And so, you know, it's interesting when you said, you know, if these numbers are even remotely accurate, we were very willing to have the public debate on these papers and on these numbers. So when we actually published that study, we kind of said, Hey, we welcome folks kicking the tires on our actuarial approach. We welcome people kicking the tires on the assumptions we put in. We welcome the public debate because our ambition here is to change the narrative and the mindset and orientation around how to go about solving these problems. There's lots of folks out there with well intentions who I think are just chasing a really bad set of ideas. And what's so shocking to me is that no one has taken us up on that debate. No one has really said, hey, I see a different set of assumptions, or why did you make these choices? Or we've gotten none of it, not even confidentially on the side, we've gotten none of it.
0: I don't understand that, Neil. I mean, you know, the CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, just put out a report about the amount of money they've saved in ACOs across the country. I mean, I'm hoping that folks will hear this conversation and have some sort of conversation. I don't know how we're ignoring it. I mean, what's your yeah. take on that?
1: What's interesting is it's not that we haven't had engagement. We've had tremendous engagement. No one has challenged the underlying assumptions. And I don't know if that means we defended them well in the paper and we were transparent enough where folks are comfortable with the assumptions. I don't really know. I think part of this is it is wildly complex, right? It's part of this. You know, what's so interesting is the follow on paper, we haven't talked about it, but the follow on paper to that paper where we laid out the 3.5 trillion savings. The next year we put out a paper that said of the 3.5 trillion, how much of that is only realized if you address inequity in the system. So what we ended up doing was modeling the cost of inequity, gender bias, racial bias, socioeconomic bias were the three big ones. And obviously there's lots of inequity driven by other things besides those three, but those were the big three. We started digging in and we found that there was no real reliable number sizing the cost of inequity. So we sized it. And what we said was of that 3.5 trillion in 2040, a full 1 trillion is related to inequity. So if you want to go get that full nugget of goodness in 3.5, you got to go fix these inequity elements that are rife throughout the system. And on that paper, what's interesting is, again, no one challenged the assumptions. Lots of fabulous sort of engagement. We actually had one entrepreneur reach out and said, I've been trying to fund design of a new health plan for years. And every time I get close to closing around, folks say, size the market for me through a third party set of data. And he he said, there was none. He's like, so thank you for giving us a number because there is no number. So that's a long way of answering your question, which is I think part of what's going on here is through this reorientation of wellness and well-being, early detection, early intervention, and not trying to parse the sick care orientation that we've been oriented around forever. I think what it means is a lot of our numbers and a lot of our analyses are sort of the initial sort of stakes in the ground on that frame. And my hope is others look at it and take a similar perspective and size it through their lens. And we end up with a different set of cuts over time that then lets us have a really good debate on the new model, as opposed to continuing to sort of figure out if we can, you know, get blood from a stone on the old model, which we've been at it for 70 years. It it ain't getting better, right? It is what it is. Yeah.
0: No, the costs. I mean, if you look at the graphs, the Kaiser Family Foundation and other data and tables out there, I mean, when I've read recently, we're going to continue to see, you know, increases in healthcare costs for employers that are still in the eight to 10% a year. Some it's up to 15% year over year increases in healthcare costs. I mean, Already breaking everyone, breaking employers, breaking employees, and yet there's no end in sight. And that's why I think what you're talking about is so exciting. But let's jump to, you know, I'm just going to sort of state the obvious and and answer my own question: Why aren't we seeing this happen in any noticeable accelerated way? And if you disagree, tell me because I want to ask you the question: If there are examples of this, but here's the obvious, you know, question and thought is that the current industry, the healthcare industry, all stakeholders. In the industry, pretty much the business model, the revenue streams are, are built on, you know, what you call sick care, what others have called sick care, this kind of reactive care, you know, there are 4 trillion reasons, right, for keeping and maintaining the current business model, the current sick care business model, you know, and that's across the board, right? So, and I also think from an employer perspective, and I'm just going to put this out there. I can imagine an employer saying, well, you know, that's all well and good, but, you know, once people retire, they're not my problem, right? Or are they? And so I guess my question is, is the healthcare industry sort of seeing this as hugely disruptive to their business model and revenue stream? And is that why there's nothing happening there? Or is it just this is outside of the purview of you know what the industry does right it's the industry's focused on you know on sick care on medications and devices and diagnostics and treatment and procedures and you know so it's what they do it's what the industry does and so there's a lot of reasons why this is at a minimum being ignored if not actively so and so I just wonder, you know, how would you, if we were sitting in a room with industry leaders, you know, from the insurance carriers to device manufacturers, to PBMs, to hospital healthcare systems, to provider groups and on and on, how would you respond to that concern or issue?
1: Yeah. You know, I'll answer the first question first, and that'll lead into sort of that second question there. I I think this is happening, but I think it links to the last point you made, which is not happening within the incumbents because they're oriented around sick care. I think that's part of the deal here. So a lot of this wellness and well-being is playing out. And it's playing out exactly how we laid out, laid out in our sort of 2018 initial paper called Forces of Change. And the main point of that paper was the way industries evolve. And this is based on analysis we've done in terms of financial services and other verticals over time. The way they evolve is that the incumbents only move when they're pressured to move. Right. If you're an incumbent in an industry, you are not going to blow up the industry business model because you are benefiting in position to win in the current business model, right? You're not gonna necessarily take that risk because you've kind of won the game. And so the way transformations occur in industries is pressure from the outside in, from non-entrenched, often technology, technically advanced organizations that tend to be more consumer-centric, and then you have a game. Either those new entrants come in and ultimately win, or, they create such risk and such complexity that the incumbents respond credibly and they end up evolving their model and ultimately still surviving that transformation. And lots of debate whether you've ever had actually incumbents make these really profound changes. We won't get into that for now, but that was sort of the basis of why we stood this team up in 2018, which is we saw the money coming into health from these non-native new entrants often funded by VCs, but you also have Strong verticals and in other industries that are beginning to look at health. And our view was if they can get enough traction, the incumbents begin to respond. What's interesting is with Deloitte as the world's largest health advisor, we, you know, we advise sort of on all sides of this conversation, trying to help organizations compete. And I can tell you, in the last two years, mid-COVID and post-COVID, you're seeing a lot of the incumbents respond and think, in many instances for the first time around truly orthodoxy breaking changes to their business model you know if i'm a hospital and my model is based on you physically showing up when you're unwell and sitting in a bed for a number of days i mean making money on that you're seeing hospitals finally think about is there a way for me to do hospital at home Mm -hmm. is there a way for me to do remote monitoring that's ai driven so that it's not based on you know hands and feet of physicians and clinicians that's Mm -hmm. naturally limiting my ability to sort of provide good service and good quality care and good insights because I'm limited by sort of human capital factors. You're looking at organizations like pharma companies think about, okay, maybe I'm not a pill company. Maybe I am actually a healthcare company. And maybe that means I need to intervene at places other than late stage disease that require a product to be consumed. And you're seeing that industry begin to explore those things. So It's a long way of saying, I think this flywheel is beginning to turn Mm. and I think it's creating enormously interesting opportunities and dynamics. And you're seeing this play out now where incumbent organizations are absorbing some of these new entrants and they're evolving the way in which they're seeing the world and performing in the world. And in other cases, you're seeing early stage startups begin to kind of get to that mid-level where you're saying, hey, they might actually make it on their own. Yeah.
0: I'm going to, again, read from your work here and you and your colleagues. And I did actually put this in my book as well. Here, I'm just going to read something because I think this is important for folks to hear your point of view so explicitly and please respond to this. Here's what I wrote. In 2019, approximately 80% of all healthcare spend went to clinical care and treatment, so-called sick care. But the folks at Deloitte believe that by 2040, 60% of all spending, 60% of all healthcare spending will go toward improving health and well-being. And secondly, they predict a new health economy, different from today's business models, will drive 85% of all revenue. Wow. A new business model focused on well-being and care enablement. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, you know, our current clients would ask me a lot of questions about that as well. <laughs> so you're, Neil, you're telling me that people aren't going to need pills anymore. That's not what we're saying. Hmm. I think what we are saying is that we have almost structurally dodged the business opportunities of providing early line of sight and wellness and well-being products and services that are hyper-tailored to an individual in their circumstances. And a lot of that was structural in nature. I couldn't get enough data on you. You weren't You know, you as an individual lack the health literacy to sort of translate that to me. Access to physicians and clinicians was always had to be done in person and access was limited. Scheduling was complicated, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the challenges. Mm -hmm. A lot of those constraints are kind of beginning to melt away here. Digital data, the ability to, you know, have wearables and nearables that generate unbelievably deep and granular health information that's getting better by the day. You know, tools that allow me to kind of rationalize what that data means and get it to insights that may or may not be actionable. The ability to engage with clinicians who may not be around the corner or who have to physically show up to get some really sharp insight. You know, lots of speculation that Gen AI is going to allow me to have a doctor in my pocket at all times. That's really nuanced. Right. So you have these fundamental drivers that are actually getting us to a moment where you may actually be able to, you know, instead of two or three times a year engage with a clinician in a react respond way, maybe you have three to five or five to 10 nudges daily
0: mm-hmm. around
1: my health and wellness mm. that allow me to avoid the big complex, potentially catastrophic health events that tend to play out and then drive down lifespan and health span. That's the idea. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, we wrote a lot of that in 2018, 2019, and we were speculating. Mm-hmm. On these disruptive tech that are now playing out. And Gen AI is a great example. We were speculating on the advancement of health literacy and the mm-hmm. activation of consumers who are increasingly showing up with enough sophistication to say, hey, I want my healthcare to be that, not that. So we were playing on a lot of those elements, and we were playing on the fact that we saw these third party organizations get stood up and we counted on them creating enough action and value in the system that the incumbents would have to respond. And we're seeing that now as well. So it's yeah. you know. You never get it all right, but the big factors that we saw, we are seeing play out in a way that's driving the behavior change we expected that puts this in play and continues to make this a, you know, a higher likelihood outcome.
0: I have to say, I completely agree with you. And, you know, this notion, I love the way you put it, you know, instead of, you know, seeing your doctor once a year for that perfunctory physical Mm. or examination, or if you do have a chronic disease like high blood pressure or diabetes or hypercholesterolemia or any other for that matter you know maybe you're seeing someone you know 2 3 times a year which is right about the average for someone with a chronic medical problem but to your point that whole thing can shift with digital enablement with these you know monitors and getting the feedback so it's not you know 3 times a year it's like you say maybe 3 times a day and where you get these nudges you you get this feedback and we have you know what's fascinating important to realize is this is not like future talk this is technology that is literally off the shelf now it's even available and increasingly becoming so right it's not the technology that's the problem in fact the technology is there and it's getting easier and less and less costly in fact we have an overabundance of these digitech companies for years have been following folks like omada health mm-hmm. which began in pre-diabetes as you know and now is in diabetes and hypertension and depression and and then of course Verda, using digitech to literally reverse type 2 diabetes and successfully and lavongo and so many others and you know it's really fascinating. I was talking to a colleague who actually is in this world in the digitech world, an executive. And I said to her, We were on a Zoom call. And I said to her, My God, I said to her, I have to tell you this. You look great. I mean, your skin looks great. You -hmm. you, you look like you're five years, 10 years younger. I and I asked, I said, listen, I'm saying this in part because it's your friend and a colleague, and it's a stark observation I have. But I also want to know what you're doing, right? I said, whatever it is you're doing, I'd like to know. And I had no idea what she was doing, but she said, oh, I have bought this aura ring and mm-hmm. it's monitoring all these things about me. And I found that, you know, if I don't eat meat, for instance, my heart rate is actually much better. The, the variation is actually much more healthy and heartbeat to heartbeat. I've changed my sleeping habits based on the feedback. And she named like three or four things that she was doing differently changed how many cups of you know caffeinated tea she was drinking and found that it changed this feedback and i mean this for me was such a stark real example of what you're talking about
1: it's exactly right so if you go back to certain the original numbers you laid out purchase of those wearables is not a sick care spend and it's not covered by insurance because they have the data or the insight and it's now not rule of thumb medicine. It is precise N of one medicine. And so look, people are people and there's lots of segments you have to think about. We've not really segmented in healthcare. Historically, we treated everybody the same and we gave the same rules of thumb and the same guidance and don't eat meat and avoid caffeine and you know, don't drink more than this. And you have all these rules of thumb, but that's not necessarily accurate for every individual. Some folks process Red meat really well, and it doesn't drive any inflammation. Exactly. And, and you know what? That's okay. Right. So tell them to, you know, don't tell them to avoid red meat. So that's I right. Consumers are increasingly understanding of this, and these devices are going to help them mm. get N of one precise, which now makes this something I'm increasingly in control. And so that's one of the trends that we're playing out here. Historically, consumers have exerted more preference on the system. And the case of health, the physician and clinicians have then had to respond to those preferences, but they were the holders of the knowledge and the holders of the insight, going forward, we actually think the consumers are going to exert more preference and exert, you know, more of a sense of what they want, but they're also going to be the ones that own the insight. And it's going to be through these devices. If you believe in that world, that means that clinicians move from a fundamental driver stakeholder to a support stakeholder. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty wild statement, but you see that playing out because you now have your example of your friend or your colleague who made those changes and there's not a doctor to be found.
0: Right, right. And I mean, if she keeps this up, I could see how that could translate into her living, not just longer, but those lives being healthier. Yes, And, and I think that's a really important point, Neil, that this sort of digital enablement and this shift in care from the sort of reactive Where the locus of control and power is with the expert professional in some sort of centralized, you know, area that you have to go to, to that shift of the point of care being the point of need, where now the locus is you and you have the information in a really easily digestible, real-time way. And I think the point you made about customization and personalization is critical. Because that is not the way the industry has worked. And I agree, but it's the way we want it to be. That NF1 you're talking about is this is not some sort of generic advice. Like you said, you know, you can't just tell everyone don't eat meat or don't eat dairy or don't do this. You know, it depends. We're all different. You know, we respond differently, and that's just a fact. And what works for me may not work for someone else. And that's true for both diet, nutrition, exercise, lifestyle, but it's also true for medication and medical care. You know, the studies are generic, you know, it's that average person, but I'm not an average person. Uh, You know, we know that somewhere between 30 to 40% of patients who get a medication, the medication won't actually help them.
1: And this might be the heart of the whole point here, which is we've had a work with me as I kind of make this point, but it's been a rule of thumb type health system for so long. Mm. Don't do these things, do these things. I'm going to do a checkup on you and look at these things and extrapolate health off the back of that. It's been directional, it's been blunt, it's been low precision and low frequency. And frankly, it's been in place since post-World War II and we've been at it now for, you know, call it 70, 80 years. I could argue, take away all the nuance of this conversation. Any system that's been in place for 70 or 80 years is as good as it's gonna get, full stop. And, And I think what we're arguing now is we have an opportunity to get wildly more precise about you at an individual end of one level and give you insight and access Mm -hmm. to information. And we can do it sooner than you having to push yourself into the system because whatever condition you're dealing with is unmanageable on your own.
0: I'm gonna, you know, uh, this is, I shouldn't do this, but it's the rule of thumb medicine to the rule of one medicine. I love it. I I love it. it. You like that? (laughs) Yes, I love it. Okay. Exactly. Give me credit for it. I give Got you it. credit. <laughs> <laughs> no, Neil, this is great. I do want to, you know, I don't want to dwell on this, but I think it is a tough shift for the healthcare industry. And, and also, and I know you, you would agree with me on this, you know, you and others, and we talk about the sort of sick care system. I just want to make one point just so we're all clear about this. You know, thank God for the sick care system. Thank, thank, thank God. God. Right. Yes. I mean, we don't have to say, it, but we should say it because, you know, it is there for a reason. And when mm-hmm. we do have illness, disease, trauma, Thank God we have the world's best sick care system. And, you know, and I mean that so sincerely. And at the same time, you could respect it. And at the same time, though, to your point, it is not fundamentally, it is not serving the American public well from a health care and health perspective. What we need to do is tell me if you agree with this. We need to widen the aperture. And we do need to start to divert some of the resources, as you point out, into this prevention, proactive, instead of the rule of thumb, get to the rule of one. And I mean, again, as an individual, I don't care if you're not in healthcare or you're an executive in healthcare, if you run insurance companies, hospital systems, you want the rule of one. You want prevention, right? For yourself, for your family, right? Much better to not have that stroke than to have the world's best stroke unit, right? That's right, that's exactly right. Right, I mean, thank God for the best cath labs in the country, but I'd rather not have that heart attack or, you know, and so I'd rather not have that cancer than have the best chemotherapy or the best cancer institute.
1: Both things can be true. Thank goodness for tremendously talented and tremendous technology on the sick care piece. But you can honor that and acknowledge that and be deeply thankful for that and simultaneously say, we are flowing way too much energy and resourcing and talent on that piece of the puzzle. Both those things are true. Because frankly, if you held, and this is going to be pro- very yeah. comfortable, but if if you held our sick care capabilities constant over the next decade and flowed everything into wellness well being, I think the yield on the American health system would be enormous economically as well as from an outcome perspective.
0: Well your studies pointed out and again I think you're right you put the studies out you're showing we could save over 3 trillion dollars a year if we started to shift to a wellness and proactive healthcare system over 3 trillion and that's on a base of you know what's predicted to be 11.8 trillion that's a significant you know it's like a third savings And I do think this is kind of the reflection we need to start to make and start to divert some of those resources and funds. And that's why I think it's so critical. I think this conversation is so important. Clearly, I put it in my book. In fact, I put it in my book twice. (laughs) Different studies you did to show. I do want to sort of, you know, in the last couple of minutes, I do want to kind of go back to your study that I quoted and referenced about disparities of care. You know, you point out, in fact, in your most recent study, that while white Americans have an average lifespan of 78 years Black Americans live only seventy-two, and Native Indian Americans live sixty-eight. You also point out that the, in terms of healthy lifespan, for white Americans it's sixty-six years, for Black Americans it's sixty years, and for Native American Indians it's fifty-four years. The disparity is just, it's just so terrible, and it pains me literally every time. And I read these numbers and look at all these numbers almost every single day, and. You know, I just want you to sort of comment. I know you have, and again, you've written about this. There's no question from a personal health, you know, morbidity, mortality, quality of life perspective, what, you know, we're talking about in terms of eliminating this disparities is so important, but I think what's really, really important. And I don't know, even if the, if the folks who do this, you know, in terms of equity and disparities in healthcare, if they even know these numbers, but I love what you've done, you and your team you're saying it's not just that it's also, there is an economic imperative because as you point out, and thank you for sharing this, we could save $1 trillion a year, $1 trillion annually by 2040, if we eliminate the disparities in care. And so please comment on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, all you can say is it is wildly disappointing. It's been reported on for years and You know, for the most part, and, you know, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but the system has ignored it for the most part. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to be very stark in making the point that, you know, while the benefits of 12 additional years and, you know, 19 and a half healthy years is unbelievable. For those that are actually, you know, starting off in a worse place, (laughs) the gains are even more profound Hmm. and more remarkable and and you should be asking yourself when you read this paper how has it come to be mm-hmm. that human beings with different ethnicity have wildly different outcomes when there is no biological reason for it let's be super clear right cuz so much of bias is underpinning on the unsaid which is oh well there's things that are going on differently in that body than in the other body that's not true no fundamentally it's not true so what it means is and i'll offer the answer which is it means the environments and the ecosystem within which People of different races operate and the way in which they are able to engage with the world are so different that it leads to in, in some cases double digit differences in lifespan and health span outcomes. That's that's wild. Yeah.
0: Do you yeah. see, Neil, do you see the change happening? I mean, do you see employers picking up on this more? Do you see because I, I keep on hearing from folks, even conversation I had earlier today, that the employers and the benefits managers are pushing back on digital and digital enablement. And I'm just I'm in this conversation is sort of shaking my head and saying, I don't know what reality they're looking at or speaking to, but how would you characterize, I don't know if it's in some of this new paper you're putting out, the sort of momentum or direction, the investment in this wellness proactive rule of one care.
1: Actually, touched on this in some of the back and forth you and I had before this conversation. And the comment I made there is step one is you got to measure the thing. And in particular on inequity our observation is nobody has measured this thing worth a darn mm. and a lot of it is because this conversation is so third rail in american society and folks are so uncomfortable engaging on it and don't necessarily have the comfort on how to talk about things and we're policing language in a certain way and it's just created all these barriers around actually track it H- have you seen what you know your black employees and your white employees and your hispanic employees The differences in outcomes, the differences in disease, the differences on when those diseases, you know, onset, the ways in which they actually navigate the system and get care differently, and how, you know, there are mechanisms that are pushing them towards different choices for no really good reason. Have you done that study as an employer? Do you understand how if you walk in certain different people's shoes, you end up going down wildly different paths for no really good reason? My observation is employers have not done that work. And a lot of other stakeholders in the system have not done that work. And so first things first is you want to go fix this thing, actually measure it yeah. and measure it with some precision.
0: Yeah, That's funny. I'm staring at a book by John Doerr called Measure What Matters. And mm. This is exactly what you taught. Classic book, by the way. Yeah, that book. Yep. But Neil, can't thank you enough. Neil, it's so funny. When I was preparing for this interview, it was one of the few times where oftentimes when I'm in the middle of an interview with someone, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this I need so much more time with this person. we got to you know, do a two part. I had that sense before we even got on. I, yeah. I, I literally, as we we're preparing, I was thinking about, oh my God, this is not a one part interview. So <laughs> I'm hoping, especially with your new study and new reports coming out that we can follow up. But mm-hmm. last question here, Neil, you're giving a presentation to hospital healthcare systems leaders across the country. What's the one critical message or recommendation you would offer them?
1: I think it's a recognition that the role of hospitals and what it's been historically is likely not going to be the role it only plays going forward unless you're, you know, very narrowly focused on that. So in other words, I think hospitals have two choices. Either you recognize that you're going to shrink back to being a center for acute care only, and there'll be lots of other mechanisms in the ecosystem that are addressing other health conditions that are not acute, and you manage your organization then to become this sort of elite acute center care center, or you recognize that the nature of care is breaking beyond sick care into earlier diagnosis, earlier intervention, and everything that comes with it, and do you want to be in that game as well? So my observation on hospitals right now is the leadership in particular are stuck in the middle strategically. They want to be a sick care center, but the juice is not going to be there. The patients aren't going to be there. It's too expensive. The new technologies are too expensive for too little gain. That model, as I've, I've got an old friend who says, that dog ain't going to hunt, right? hmm but in general, you're seeing hospitals maintain their orientation around that model and not pivot to expansion of the role of what a care center can be, which is not just acute, you know, high end therapy intervention. So yeah. my, main, my main message to hospitals is you got, you got to strategically pick a path and get organized around that path.
0: Neil, again, I have so many more questions for you and I'd love to continue this conversation with you, but I know we've gone way over. I sincerely want to thank you, Neil Batra, the principal in the life science and health division at Deloitte for taking the time to be with us today and really providing us with just, I think, an inflection in what the healthcare industry and more importantly, what healthcare in America needs to head towards, which is much more proactive wellness care, as well as you put it shifting from the rule of thumb care to the rule of one care. And Neil, every episode I conclude by thanking the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. And those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, their families, their communities, and our society. This is Zeb Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. My friends, be well.